Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Stuart didn't know anybody was around, had no clue that that was uh, that there was anybody pressing on him. But uh, Green uh, Green moved his, tri- his his troops down this way. He was looking for Stuart. He knew where Stuart was. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Steve Katzberg talking about how geographic information technology is revolutionizing the revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publisher of The Battles of Connecticut Farms and Springfield, 1780, by Edward G. Lengel. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Dr. Steve Katzberg, and he's coming to us with a new perspective on some old events. Today, Dr. Katzberg is going to be talking about how to use geographic information system technology to try to answer some of the long lingering questions about the American Revolutionary Period, which the primary source is just haven't produced answers yet for. Uh, A little bit about this topic really draws me in uh, because one of my primary fields of study has been a study of battlefields. Not necessarily particularly any one battle, but how we think about battlefields, how we remember battlefields, what battlefields mean to us, what preservation means to us. These are all things that as a professional historian, I really concern myself with. And to hear Dr. Katzberg today talk about using new technology, um, imaging technology and sensing technology to kind of draw these details out of the ground itself, out of that sacred soil itself, I think is just a really cool way to study uh, and change the field. And just the kind of stuff that you'll see published uh, on the Journal of the American Revolution website every week, dot allthingsliberty.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Steve Katzberg. Steve Katzberg, thank you for joining us. Uh, My pleasure. Tell us about your background. Well, um, uh, I guess what you might call, uh, through my mother, uh, my mother's family here in South Carolina, sort of a seventh-generation South Carolinian, if you count the first one or two that came over from County Antrim in Northern Ireland. And so the family's been here. Uh, my, my family on my mother's side has been here from the mid-1700s. And um, uh, I was born, uh, like four of my ancestors, within about three miles of the same spot in Lawrence County near Clinton, South Carolina. And... Um, my dad was a Yankee, came down from up north and met my, my mother, and uh, my dad was went in the military in the Korean War, and we wandered around as military brats. I went to um, 
I went to various high schools and stuff across the South, and and then went to college at MIT, um, got BS in electrical engineering. And as a friend of mine once said, you went to MIT to be trained, and you went to the University of Virginia to be educated. So I ended up with a PhD in electrical engineering at the University of Virginia. Um, met my wife while I was in there in Virginia, and uh, we moved back down to South Carolina, uh, where I had taught for a, a short while at uh, South Carolina State University, and they pound of flesh they got out of me to let me let me uh, kind of do my retirement transition was to I had to teach a class in uh, in GIS and uh, GPS which is a research area I'm working on the GIS uh, I did not but I I winged it and taught it for about three or four years at South Carolina State then I kind of re- retired completely um except for some small work I'm still doing with the National Aeronautics and Space Administration that I worked for for many years, but also with the uh, Historic Roads Mapping Congress, a group under Charles Baxley, his, uh, his, uh, his uh, Southern Campaign to the American Revolution. And we're, we're kind of a group that, that is obsessed about the actual roads that were here during the Revolution. Um, and that's kind of how I got into the little bit of research I did on the Battle of Utah Springs. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, I mean, uh, a little bit is I've always had an interest in history. Um, my my great uncle, my grandfather, had passed away um, when I was fairly young, but his, his brothers were around, and, and they were old enough that because of the old age, I guess, that their, their father and his father for them got married, they talked about the, the Civil War like people in the 50s talked about World War II. And so all those stories about history in South Carolina, uh, attended uh, Duncan's Creek Presbyterian Church, which was for homecoming, not, no, not to go to church or anything, but for the family homecomings down there. So all the lore and stories about uh, South Carolina Revolution, I had a a great 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 grandfather who was at the Battle of Calpins, which you know, like for people down here, they they didn't talk so much about that as it was stuff like, well, my uh, at the old farm we used to have a cartridge box that, that that Robert Long got from from the Battle of Calpins, and that's so those stories like is what what is it what was it Faulkner the the past is not dead it's not even past here in this part that part of South Carolina. And so when I came back to this part of where I am now, which is in Orangeburg County, a, a very old county in, in South Carolina, settled in the 17, 1735 by Swiss immigrants, right here there was a whole lot of uh, whole lot of the revolution still floating around, and the Battle of Utah Springs is the is the is the biggest one here around, and it's about thirty five, well, it's about forty miles from here, um, and so. You know, with an interest in history uh, already, uh, the, the Utah Springs battle was uh, natural to draw me down there to the monument and and stuff like that. For those that aren't familiar with the battle, could you give us a brief summary of the Battle of Utah Springs and why it was important? Yeah, I mean, the thing that's interesting to me is, you know, in, in 1780, uh, a, a, hardly a year before 
the battle of just over the year before the battle of, of Utah Springs, the the Patriots suffered a, a humiliating and disastrous loss in the surrender of Charleston, and um, and so in in there was still uh, resistance, but the the Patriot army disappeared. It wasn't like it was all you know went back as as being. Uh, um, um, they had to, they had to you know make uh, you know their agreement not to fight and uh, so the army disappeared but but in the upstate they were not part of the um, of the um, uh, of the um, um, they weren't part of the of the of the surrender there were a lot of people who took parole but not in the upstate they're kind of a wild bunch anyway they came down oddly enough. Uh, from up in your part of the country, all these Scotch-Irish immigrants came into to Pennsylvania and at the tail end of the French and Indian War, and a lot of them moved south. And they didn't go, come in from the coast. They came in up into the upstate, straight down the old wagon trail. And so there's a whole lot of bones from Northern Ireland along, scattered from Pennsylvania, Virginia, North Carolina, down here into South Carolina and upper, upper uh, North Carolina. So... Um, so, so after that, the battle kind of, I mean, uh, after the, uh, sprint of Charleston, um, you know, it's one of these things that it's, it's amazing. Can the people, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps? Can they get up, be knocked down and get up? And it's a kind of like, um, uh, this was the story of, 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 resurrection and rebirth of the of the of the cause of people in the upstate who weren't all that they weren't all that big on on they were they supported the revolution mostly but they didn't um they, they never there was not not a lot of um love lost between the upstate and the the kind of the anglican english or barbadian charlestonians um it was not any any anything like the regulators in North Carolina, which is this kind of thing now on uh, Outlander. There was no such no 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 fighting between them, but they weren't really. It was kind of like, hey, you know, we're up here by ourselves. We need help every now and then. They send the the colonial troops up here, not the British troops. Uh, although Amherst was up here at one time, um, Lord Amherst. So um, the the, the they sent Gates down. He was defeated at Camden. The, the, so what they sent down to try to rescue us here in South Carolina or North Carolina and in Georgia, that that was battered. But still, the 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 the, the Whig militias, uh, of which my great great grandfather was a member, they rose up and then they fought back at Blackstocks and Hanging Rock and stuff, and and. Uh, and the defeat, really, of the repulse, anyway, in Charlotte. So, um, over time, after Calpins, um, uh, Pickens, and the militia, who were much maligned back in that, they, 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 those guys up there got their noses bloodied, and with a little help from Light Horse Harry Lee and, and William Washington and others, they, they started to put together... Um, a resilient group of, of, of organized militia under Marion and and um, and um, Pickens, and so when Nathaniel Green came down, he re, restarted the war for 
the Patriots and Whigs in South Carolina, and he started, uh, you know, started moving around the state, Attack 96, was repulsed, uh, lost at, uh, I guess, what was it, uh, Ramsey's Mill and uh, Ramser's Mill. Anyway, so by about um, after Calpins and after the Nathaniel Green was here, the, 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 the Patriot militia had gotten to be a pretty tough group. They didn't run from bayonets anymore. They drums and a few cannon. They, they, they started, they began to stand their ground. And by about, um, in, in July of 1781, the, the Daniel Green was able to, along with Marion and Pickens and with new troops coming down from North Carolina, uh, they were able to put together a pretty decent little army. And at the same time, uh, Lord Rawdon, who had uh, played his nasty role in the, in the murderous execution of Isaac Hayne, uh, he had left, uh, oddly enough, to be captured on a ship leaving uh, after Cornwallis surrendered, I think. But, but uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart was a pretty active and able uh, officer and he, you know, he he fought off um, uh, the, the Whigs, the Whigs at uh, ninety six, and there was some moving back and forth in the state, uh, skirmishes between Marion and so forth. But uh, pretty soon, between the loss of Fort Mott, Fort Watson, and stuff like that, uh, the English would, and after uh, after Cornwallis had been pretty much battered at Guilford Courthouse and headed off to Virginia, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart uh, started kind of like pulling back from the interior. There was a trail of tears that marched across the Edisto River here from the the Tories uh, coming with British escort from 96 as they headed for Hell Hull or Halifax to Charleston. And, um, and so Stewart was kind of looking for a fight with green, not afraid of him, but there was, they were like pretty much, um, in equilibrium around here. So Stuart had decided to kind of pull back towards after going up and down the Santee river, he pulled back to, uh, down to Utah Springs. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a wonderfully odd place down there. The Springs tend to move around and about in 2006, the Corps of Engineers, reduced the depth on the on Lake Marion and the springs became visible again but it's not clear that those springs even though and I've got a video of the springs running I'm not sure that anybody really knows which holes down there the springs were but they're quite large and Stuart was sitting there um uh camped around there with um uh waiting for supplies to come from Charleston and some additional troops were supposed to come up and he sent out he sent out um, scouts, but they uh, some didn't return. Some did return, and people were all these scouts were always some of them were snatched up, some of them were deserted. Uh, so he didn't get any any. Uh, he, he was not aware that there was anybody around here, and there hadn't been of the Patriot Army. Green had collected pretty much everybody in, 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 including Marion and he had Pickens and he had the new North Carolina levies. And he was at the, at the, at the um, high Hills of Santee and crossed at McCord's Ferry, I believe it was, and headed down towards Burdell's 
uh, Burdell's Plantation, which is near Vance's Ferry, um, about, I'd say about seven, eight miles away from the springs. Um, Stewart didn't know anybody was around, had no clue that that was, uh, that there was anybody pressing on him, but, uh, Green, um, Green moved his, tri- his, his troops down this way. He was looking for Stuart. He knew where Stuart was. So, um, in, uh, on the, um, early in the morning before the battle actually started, they sent, the, the British were trying to, um, supplement their, their rations with, uh, at this time of year, sweet potatoes are dug in South Carolina, they're ripe in September, early September when the battle, I think it's September 9th. When the, they and so they got together some foraging parties and sent them up what's called the Congaree River Road. When you go towards uh, Columbia, and, and oddly enough, when you go the other way, it has a name. It's the Monk's Corner Road or the road to Charleston. So they sent those little those guys, young guys, kicked them up, woke them up in the middle right before dawn, and they went trudging up the up the road towards up the Congaree River Road and went down the pass down to the plantations on the river and they um they were looking for straw uh, for uh, uh, sweet potatoes some of them were armed uh some of them were not uh this somewhat there's still debate about some of that but but um and, but they said uh because Stuart had not heard that there was any danger he didn't he didn't pay much attention to uh protection but just in case he sent uh, major coffin with some of his mounted troops as a kind of an escort, there's a couple hundred or more, maybe 300 of these, uh, they claim of the, of the uh, I think the count is of the, uh, the foraging parties are split into one or two or three groups. And when they, um, uh, 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 and, and Coffin was watching around, keeping an eye out and he spotted some troopers who came marching, I mean, kind of get, uh, riding into the road. And it was the vanguard of, uh, so like an advanced guard of Green's entire army, 3,000 3, troops. And um, when Coffin saw them, he thought they were just the usual bunch of local Whigs trying to cause trouble. And he charged them, and he charged right into the vanguard of the entire massed Patriot Army in South Carolina, 3,000 troops, all of whom were pretty much now veteran troops. So... As soon as he was shattered, the people in the, 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 the potato diggers, they could hear all the shooting. They took off running. Some hid in the woods, and some fought back. And there's actually some evidence that there, was, uh, there, there, were, there were some skirmishes that were of significant size, although I'll leave that to the battlefield um, analyzers to, to come up with how that fit in, in the uh, narratives of the time. And Coffin's, um, some, some of Coffin's panicked the troopers came riding back into the into the the british camp which is right there at the at the at the um the two the springs big boiler and little boiler as they were called uh and they're the at the head of a kind of a little ravine that goes all the way down the santee river it's amazingly long it's a it's a mile or two down there it's net the, the the creek at the time was never very deep was a sort of a, a, a ledge on one side and kind of flat on the other, and um, so it's sitting there. That was uh, that was uh, Stewart's uh, headquarters in a in a uh, uh, a stone building, stone farmhouse there without buildings, 
his, his tents were still up. There was the alarm came in, but but Stewart then um, uh, uh, formed his troops in a single line with some reserve uh, across the Charleston Road or Monk's Corner Road and the road to Roaches um, with a pair of uh, small guns, I think three or six pounders, on the Charleston Road and a couple of them on the uh, on the road to Roaches and. He waded um, through the woods and in some skirmishing about a mile away that already started, Green started his assault uh, against the British hastily drawn up. And a, a flank company was left that was organized to put right on the, on the creek itself. So the, the battlefield, the line of the British troops was approximately uh, due south from the creek, from the, from the, the brick house that they were that they were kind of that was that was Stewart's headquarters. That was pretty much due south or southwest. And Green came along the Congaree River Road from the west. Um, and the, um, the the first ones to, to to get into battle were the the militia, and they came forward. They fought. Um, Toe to toe until they ran out of ammunition, they started to fade back, and the British soldiers were rushed forward and ran right into the the uh, the, the uh, Continental troops, who repulsed them and drove forward uh, into, in fact, the British uh, camp, which was also due south of the of the um, the brick house where the headquarters were at the head of the of the creek, um, and then the um, the the British backed up and hid mostly in and around the outbuildings of the the farmhouse, the brick house. While a lot of the the stragglers and stuff panicked and took off down the Charleston uh, Monk's Corner Road and just complete you know uh, chaos down that way, but the, but. The Americans tried to to storm the house. William Washington and the rest came through the, the charging through the, um, the the this kind of a low brushy kind of uh, uh, kind of a, a shrub oak that grows down there, and they 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 got tangled up in that. The Americans had brought up their little pieces of artillery that they had had, trying to pound a hole in the in the in the buildings and the brick building that the British were holed up in, which had garret windows and where the British were shooting out at Americans. They even tried to break into the door and they nearly got in, but they got the cannon too close to the house and had the, 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 the cannoneers shot, killed or wounded. Washington got trapped, um, uh, caught up in the, in the shrub oaks and was bayoneted and captured. Um, the um, the head of the South Carolina troops, uh, uh, Henderson, was wounded too, I believe. So about this time, uh, Stuart realized he wasn't losing, and uh, US, the American troops, the, the Whigs, um, were in a somewhat of a disarray. And the British troops, which you know we we call them British troops, but great bulk of them were 
were uh, loyalists from from New Jersey and, and New York, or Pennsylvania, wherever in the North, people who did not have family in the South, so there were no divided loyalties. These same Americans, now Royal, Royal Americans, attacked and drove um, drove um, Green's troops back. Um, it was bitter fighting. The the militia was out was, uh, did, w- performed wonderfully. The the um, Continentals did well. It was an extremely bloody battle, but by it was still in September. Uh, South Carolina still as hot as forty hells, and they were running out of water on, on the U.S. side. The British, of course, had this, the stream, the, the bo- big boiler and little boiler, and so Green pulled back, and um, the uh, the battle was effectively over, um, and. Uh, the British claim victory. You 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 can read it in in, in uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart's whining uh, missives to Cornwallis, uh, bragging about the thing and about the victory that he had, and the fact that he he lost uh, at least one cannon, caught a, uh, captured a couple from the Americans, but this great victory caused him to to to. to uh, start to withdraw the very next day. He got out, of th- got out, started heading back down to the gates of Charleston, which, by the way, it was, was actually had, had a wall around it. You know, St. Augustine had a wall around it, but uh, Charleston, I think, was the only American city that was built with a wall, and the city gate, uh, you know, was soon outgrew it. But the British retreated down down to Charleston, and other than an occasional sortie. They they ceded the entire state of South Carolina and then ultimately Georgia to the the, the, to the Patriots and uh, so the battle ended pretty much ended any kind of major operations in, in South Carolina and um, and so in that respect now it was bloody but it it essentially sealed the fate of the British the the South Carolina General Assembly moved to Jacksonboro under protection of uh, Nathaniel Green and began reorganizing the state and and reestablishing civil government. And and so the battle was quite important to this state and to the Southeast, uh, and it certainly ended any kind of hopes the British had that they would, they would have converted a, 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 a beaten colony from the year before into a, 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 a new, a restore to the British crown, and it was lost forever to the Patriot cause. And that's that's pretty much the story of the battle. What are some of the mysteries and lingering questions surrounding the battle that primary sources haven't really given us good insight into yet? Well, one of the, 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 the there's a couple of them. One, who built, who owned, who lived in the big brick house that was actually the, uh, a fort that uh, uh, Stuart used because they used, a, a, as I remember, a six-pounder uh, artillery. And, of course, the powder we were using was not all like great back in those days. But um, uh, that the Patriots had, it wasn't the very best. Uh, but they were not able to, to um, force a breach into the building. Um, and, and had that thing uh, had that thing failed, had they been able to capture that, Stuart would have been destroyed. But... It was it was a fortress without buildings, a palisade, palisaded gardens, and the and both he and what they I think they pronounce his name Marshbanks, 
the flank company that was a kind of a that was a, 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 a was acting as a reserve was, was uh, held that area. But nobody knows um, exactly who built, or at least I haven't been able to find it, who built or who owned um, the the brick house, the the fortress, which is seen in the in, in the, the article. Is the is the house in the background with the dormer windows at the top? Um, it, it's known that that was owned by what's called what we what we do know is the property at that time, the entire plantation, which is about a thousand acres down to the Santee River, was owned by the McKelveys. And it says, in fact, the plat says the heirs of Mary McKelvey. And McKelveys, there's a there's a whole bunch of McKelveys. Down, it's an old name along the Santee uh, River. And so we don't know who owned the house, who built it. We do know that Joseph Johnson, who wrote his reminiscences um, of the revolution and published in 1850 some odd, he and his brother, uh, William Johnson, who wrote the, the, the book uh, about the, the, which the map of the Battle of Utah Springs is in, um, Nathaniel Green uh, biography, that both of them stayed in that house. Uh, they their dad had been um, exiled up up to I think New York or uh, Philadelphia, someplace. Came back, got the family in Charlotte, and they all headed back down to Charleston. That's where where they lived, and they spent the night. Uh, they were twelve. I think one of them was twelve. I forget what the other one was. One of them, William Johnson, who wrote the book uh, in which the maps in that 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 you know my uh, my. Um, paper was about he was um um he, he was a, a uh he, he and his brother both of them i think well, well, let me get this straight uh um he did he did not live near as long as his brother but he was an associate justice of the supreme court and they were meeting in new york i believe it was or possibly philadelphia again anyway but he he got in. That's how I think that he got himself um, connected with H. S. Tanner, the engraver in Philadelphia, uh, who was actually printing the printing the proceedings of the Supreme Court back in that time. So uh, Johnson, uh, um, so 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 Johnson uh, uh, probably got his map done up there. We don't know where the map came from exactly. We don't know who. Who, who described it to uh, uh, William Johnson that he collected, but he did contact. We do know there's correspondence between uh, William Johnson and, and the other um, and people like Otho Williams and stuff like that, trying to find out details about the battle. Because of course he was a little he was a little tight when he was there, but he actually was there. So we don't know who um, we don't know who uh, uh, owned the house. We do know it was a McKelvey. We also don't have what, what I think is another mystery is is uh, Francis Roach's plantation or what we might call the Roach plantation since they were buying and selling like crazy back there and they were they reused the same family names over and first names uh, over and over and over and um, and uh, we why in the world was there a road that went south and it's pretty clearly there was one that went south. To Mr. Roach's plantation, what of all the even to this day undeveloped land down in that part of South Carolina? A lot of it is hunt clubs and stuff like that. 
So there's nothing down there. They got a little wobble plant, not too often far down there, but mostly that stuff is just primeval forest. Why, why in the world would, would, uh, there be plantations, uh, south of, uh, of, of the battlefield about two miles south. And there were several of them down there. Um, and so we don't know why, what, 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 what were they growing there? The Santee River, where they are at, uh, where the battle was, is kind of like the upward li- upper limit of where any rice plantations were. And, and, and they, they were on the river so they could flood the, the rice fields. But there are no rivers uh, due south of, of the battlefield where, where we know Francis uh, Roach uh, plantation was so. What made it lucrative to 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 uh, have those plantations down there? Uh, and they were large plantations, you know, a few thousand acres. And uh, and they um, and and one possibility is maybe you know maybe there was upland rice. They were actually trying to grow rice in the swamp fields that were down there. We just don't know. So we don't know who owned the house. We don't know where in the world. Who actually directed, gave the in detailed directions to the the map that was done by Tanner, and we don't know uh, why in the world, um, uh, yeah, why in the world Francis Roach, um, why would Francis Roach put put, that, put a big plantation out there in the middle of nowhere? You mentioned a few different. Uh geographic information systems in your article. Could you give us a quick rundown of what those are, how they're used, and what they teach us about this event? Well, it's it, the, the, I guess um, the GIS and the plants are put together in this sense. If it, yeah, Like what they say, you know, like uh, uh, women say men never, never ask directions and, and, and women... Men say women never look at a map. Well, men just can't put a map down. Uh, maybe we're hardwired that way. I don't know. But um, when you when you uh, read a story about a battle or something like that, you, you sort of have in your mind so you know, troops marching here, there, up and down the roads, you know, having the battles and stuff like that. And the the fascination is you know looking on a map to see. You know where these soldiers were moving. Where what was it close to? What happened? And and um, and that's real easy with modern maps and stuff. We're all used to to you know any kind of well. That's all electronic. But you know in the old days when you go down to the gas stations, get you a map of of a West Virginia, trying to figure out where the hell you were. Uh, that's what we used. And um, um, but the problem is that those are all well surveyed and and easy to, I mean, they're easy to um, find locations of things, rivers and creeks and towns and intersections and stuff like that. But when you're trying to go back in history to figure out some question about, well, how did uh, how did Tarleton get from from Kershaw over to uh, to uh, Charlotte or something like that? You you you. You can go to Platts, but Platts don't normally have immutable structures on them. Like, for example, they'll say, they'll show on any number of these Platts here in South Carolina, 
north north 45 east uh, a <clears throat> hundred uh, chains uh, to the to the uh, the red cedar and then from there you know uh, 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 north uh, north 35 west or something like that to the to the black oak and well those things have long since disappeared there's nothing immutable about them and, and, and even why they used it back in those days I don't know when they when they platted out property for people and and, and um, so generally uh, plats are really difficult to deal with um, and the maps that were done in those days people still didn't couldn't decide whether the prime meridian was in Philadelphia, it was in London or Greenwich or wherever. And and years before that, they didn't have any idea about prime meridians anyway. And so, when you have um, when you have a, uh, a, a, an investigation, you're going to try to plot uh, troop movements and try to how did they get from place A to place? Where was a certain battle that happened? You know. At a certain time, you you start with the maps, which may or may not have been uh, properly. They don't have the proper spatial relationships on. They have roads that don't exist. There's a county in North Carolina that, for a hundred years, it was a it was a PR thing that somebody uh, talked about, uh, like uh, proposed a, a Pelham County outside of Wilmington, North Carolina, a county that never existed but was on maps for nearly a hundred years before people finally got rid of it and raced the thing off. So you have the errors in the maps. You have poor, um, and these are old maps. We're talking about historical maps. Luzon and Cook, uh, uh, Fadden, DeBrom, people like that, here in the South, anyway, that, that we don't look. And um, so the, the, the plats have detail, but you can't, you can't easily place them on the maps, and the maps are not very accurate anyway. So what you have to do to try to use GIS maps and plats together, you have to come forward in time, which is what was done and what I did, to the, an actual state survey that was, um, was requested in 18, between 1818 and 1820 which were the, called the, the Wilson surveys in South Carolina. There's a wonderful map in North Carolina, which was surveyed in 1808. So that predates the South Carolina. That's the uh, stone and brown maps of North Carolina. And so you take these maps, and now you know that these were surveyed uh, with reasonable equipment, with with uh, uh, compasses and and old paraphernalia surveyors, but taken against um, a, a, a fixed reference system and done in either latitude and longitude or, or Mercator or some of the other projections, which you know mathematically what they are. So you have these maps that were done, and then you have, um, so you know the spatial relationships on them are correct. Maybe the roads are not perfect that they showed on there, but fairly decent. And so what you have to start with that, and then when you're looking to try to describe a thing like what happened at Battle of Utah Springs, where the, you know, the veracity of the descriptions or the maps that were there, what the actual, actual um, 
distribution on the ground of troops and stuff like that. You're kind of stuck with the map, but now you read the documents, and so you read the descriptions and stuff, and you say, what he's got in this map he created, Mr. William Johnson, Dr. William Johnson, actually, um, uh, he and his brother were both uh, 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 medical doctors. Um, he said, like, um, um, to, to get any kind of detail, you, you've got to go back and now go to go to the kind of local detail that you can get to fill in that, and, and that comes from possibly from a plat. But generally, you're stuck, and unless you can identify creeks or um, some other t- uh, topographical uh, feature like a huge rock or something like that. You've got the long gone red oaks and the the black gum and the the uh, hickory trees and whatever else. Um, and and so we that was what we did. We knew that what the map showed was incorrect. Uh, it's incorrect because, for example, it says the road to roaches, and and we know that Stewart. Uh, uh, place two guns on the road to Roaches, and he would hardly put the guns behind his own camp along the road that if he, sh- he shot at the uh, Americans, he would have to shoot through the British troops and the camp before that happened. So we knew that was wrong. We also know that probably they were accurate in the name uh, Roaches, that it was called Roaches Road. <clears throat> That's described by um, Light Horse Harry Lee. It Although he possible he, he got that from Stewart. It's in Stewart's report. Uh, it's it's actually in uh, correspondence to Nathaniel Green uh, later that in fact from Marion in, in his barely legible gibberish that he called English um, that that they, he knew that the, the British had reoccupied Mr. Roach's plantation, Flood's plantation, and one others actually in the in a report from. Uh, um, Marion to Green uh, about a week after the battle. Um, so what we did then was go to the, the source, the South Carolina Department of Archives and History, uh, search the plats that they were there to see if we could find one bigger. And there are more big map, big plats, and I'll ex- explain that in a second. We went to the, uh, um, to the South Carolina Historical Society, the Addlestone Archives down in Charleston, hunting for anything that had to do with plats from that area and uh, from that era. Um, and, and lo and behold, what happened after so many years of, uh, planning out property to the red Oak and then down to the, the, um, uh, black locust tree and blah, blah, blah. They got all kinds of confusion and squabbles between the, different owners. And, and since these were fairly large pieces of, of land, what they did was they'd go out and get surveyors to go back and resurvey the entire property. But now the, 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 these large chunks like that, that was to, to, to settle legal arguments and stuff like that. So what it had to happen to do is because there were several large plantations, some of these plats actually were quite large. I mean, the, the plats were drawn out, of, you know, that covered one mile by about two or three miles or something like that. And it had the several plantations in there and try to identify the, the property lines and stuff like that. And in that, uh, in, in uh, from that, 
which was a lot of it was done after the 1700s and the early thir- uh, 1830s, or early 1800s, actually 1830 for the one we got here. Um, then they made a, a, a replatting, and then they re-registered those things, and that's what we, we, we finally chanced upon, uh, Dick Watkins and I, uh, we chanced upon plats from the, the large groupings, not just one particular plantation, but a, a whole section down there that they were trying to, that, that was being redone for legal purposes <clears throat> to show who who owned what, where, and where the where the property boundaries were. And, and one of them had on it uh, Francis Roach's place uh, and of uh, granted in 1786. And there's some confusion about that because the British had control of Charleston in in 1780-81. They didn't leave until 1783. So the normal process with the crown in control of Charleston and the rebels in control of everything else, <clears throat> there was no real registering of deeds as it had been in the past. But anyway, given that, that Francis Roach's property was uh, is shown on the plat that was Francis Roach's property, and it was called Wampee, um, the, we knew that in this big plat was, at one time, Francis Roach owned its own some property here at, near the battlefield. Well, if you look at the plat, you can't tell, you know, you can't, it's not done as north, south, east, and west, it's just whatever the plat laid out with whatever the the you know the the how the the property boundaries run in surveyors terms and so what the GIS comes in in that because it was large enough it captured physical features on it that are immutable for example on, on the bottom corner of the plat itself it says it it says um, uh, Tony Bay. Well, Tony Bay still exists. It's on the. It, you can go down and drive around it. It's a. It's a. It's a Carolina Bay. These sinks that nobody knows exactly. They think maybe it came from meteorites or something like that, or they were just subsidences that happened. And they they are persistent. Um, also, there were um, there was a, a few roads. It was Mr. Galliard's road. Nobody knows why that road was there, but once upon a time it it fed people from the ferries down to old town dorchester uh near charleston and it has um on top of that it has a magic line along the top it was called it it showed that the property boundaries that this man when the resurvey was done aligned across what was called the um the 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 charles it was at the time i believe charleston and orangeburg district um um, boundary line, and it was given in, in, in you know where where it was supposed it was described as starting at Nelson's Ferry and then going at a certain angle to the southwest down to some other place. So what we had there, what the GIS allows you to do is said, "Aha! Now I can take a plat. I know how to to um, identify on the plat." A, a an object that's on a surveyed map, and I know uh, various um, uh, um, what do you call know, like features, Tony Bay, uh, some of the creeks, 
the Galliards Road and the property boundary. I mean, I'm sorry, the uh, county boundary, district boundary. So I can take those and I can uh, put them onto a map, which we know the latitude and longitude of each point or the northings and eastings if you're doing uh, universal transverse mercator or whatever projection you're using. And then because you know what the mathematics are of a, of a, a, a universal, transver- universe, universal transverse mercator or, uh, or any of those you know, geographical coordinate systems, you can now take and transfer back to the plat what its corners and latitude and longitude are, northings and eastings. And you can do that. You turn the crank with the mathematical formulas, and they will do that trans- transformation for you. And then you can then now actually import the plat as if it were a map itself onto the your master canvas and see where it lands. So that's what, um, that's how the, in this case, where we had identifiable features on the plat, we had a map from the period, although you don't need that. You can use, you can actually compare it with uh, what, what you would call residual roads and what we got roads. Now, a lot of these roads don't change a whole hell of a lot, even over centuries. <laughs> Excuse me. And, um, there's or residues of the road are there. Um, you can now then put that, put that, and compare those. Um, you know, make one of them slightly transparent or whatever. You call the controls you can do uh, with GIS systems. And if you don't like the transformation to do so good, you go back and see if you can identify other features and redo it again. And when you're satisfied, then you now have an ancient plat. It's no, that are normally almost impossible to do. So you're lucky to get one like that. You overlay it onto actually well-surveyed or well-geo-referenced uh, a map, and then you now have the magic that came out of what we got because instead of the plat being, with the bottom of it being east-west, uh, sides of it north-south, it was like completely flipped around or at least rotated a whole lot and lo and behold, what was still reported out on the plat, Francis Roach's plantation uh, um, deeded or granted 1786, now was at the tail end of a road called Brigade Road that had been there in 1921. And that road goes straight due south from the battlefield. It goes... Um, and ends up at the Francis Roach's plantation. And that, that says, there's the road. That's how you now corrected the William Johnson map, which is the only map that anybody's used for uh, 180 years. Could this technology be used to study other historical events with the same accuracy? Uh, again, the key to it is <clears throat> have a surveyed map that's, pretty old with some accurate survey or reasonably accurate. I mean, like you're liable in the Western part of North Carolina, the 1808 map of, the, um, of uh, stone and Brown, <clears throat> you were liable to have your scalp removed by the Cherokee that was still there. Uh, and so if you can get a, well, and, and so how well they survey the Western parts of North Carolina, I, I don't know. Uh, but, um, 
uh, but it, but it, it, you know, get a, a map that you have like that. Then you might, and then you look for plats uh, that are big enough or have roads on them or stuff. And, and, and there's a, there's a caveat to that. The plats may have roads on them, but sometimes the plats, if it's just somebody's piece of property or something, I've been warned by a plat searcher that the roads are are unreliable when they show them uh, entering these small. Uh, plats that were done, but there may be creek on it, or there may be, um, and you know the orientation of these things, so and you know the scale to them because they report how many chains and stuff. So, given that you have a reliable map, uh, and because you're looking for old maps, you're looking for roads that existed then. You'd like to have as old a map as you can can get as a background for this thing, but you can use modern maps as well. Then, if you have features on the plats that are immutable in some way, like a, a river that goes through, or a river with a, a river that branches somewhere on a plat, or piece of, uh, or something like that, or some other identifiable feature, like a, a bay, a Tony Bay, for example, that we had. Um, so, given that you have um, a a plat that has ge- geographical or geophysical um, uh, features on it that you can still identify today. Um, then, then you're and, and the plat is you know has dimensions on it, which is why they do plats. Um, uh, yeah, then then you can do that if you if you take for example a map like the Cook map, a Muzon map. These are very famous maps down here in the southeast. Uh, <laughs> They're full of all kinds of roads that never existed, never will it will exist. They're not they're not very well surveyed, even though they're famous. But even so, so you, so you 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 might not want to try to infer anything from a plat onto a map that is in fact itself bogus. If the plat has features on it, you can certainly put it on any kind of modern map or a map as you can, far as you can go back. So the the, the 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 key to it is you can just use and if 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 you want to elucidate historical uh, events, a plain old map that's well surveyed and you can that you can align with modern roads to try to go down and find where some event happened that works. If you have a plat. That, that has identifiable features on it that are immutable. You can put that on an old map or a new map, a modern map, and still infer stuff. If you don't have features on the plat, you're stuck with just whatever the, an old map told, tells you. And if you have, um, uh, if you don't have a, 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 the old map uh, uh, and you don't have any features on the plats, in your SOL. So generally, that 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 can be if you're lucky enough to have uh, things that that you can match up. Uh, if you're trying to elucidate something, one of the things that, that they're interested in is is what is it? Piles defeat uh, uh, that uh, Light Horse Harry Lee massacred the Tories up right before the Battle of Guilford uh, Courthouse, and there's all kinds of squabble. With them, and I think they're up close to the Hatfields and the McCoys, and I, I I've stayed out of that one because I could end up with, you know, uh, I could end up dead with it. It's so violent the arguments they have that in that part of North Carolina over where Pyle's defeat was. Um, but um, um, 
other than that, yeah, there, um, there are others that we're looking at now, and it, it's because the 250th anniversary, and again, in my home neck of the woods, we're trying to identify <clears throat> um, on, on, a, on, on a geo-referenced map where various battles were in the upstate in, in, the, in what they called back in those Abbeville District, which would which that would include uh, Hammond Store, Battle of Hammond Store, Hay Station, um, uh, Calpins, um, uh, Musgrove Mill, and we're trying to take the, Will, the Wilson surveys and a Wilson map and uh, put these these the, the uh, troop movements on on map like that. So that's that's what we're looking at as well. Steve Katzberg, thank you for joining us. Hey, you're quite welcome. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>